Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we'll begin by looking at what's on the minds of swing voters with Rich Tao, president of Engageus, a leading firm in scientifically testing and refining the effectiveness of business and issue advocacy content. The firm has been conducting a series of focus groups across the country with people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and then for President Joe Biden in 2020. What these key voters had to say about the debt might be of interest to you. Then we'll talk with Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson about his new issue brief on the uncertainties of projecting costs for major new programs and why some of the projections in President Biden's budget might understate the potential costs. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman joins me for both conversations. So let's jump right in with Rich Tao. In his public opinion career, his recommendations have help shape the national debate over social security, climate change, prescription drugs, and uh, so many other issues. And now uh, he's focusing on insights to these key swing voters. Rich, welcome to Facing the Future. Great to be with you. Uh, so let's first just set the scene here by describing what a focus group is what the process is like and how it differs from polling. So a focus group is basically a conversation, a roundtable conversation moderated by one or two people who try to understand qualitatively how people react to some, for some form of stimulus. Uh, it could be uh, a policy idea, it could be specific language, it could be a consumer product like shampoo or toothpaste, but it's an opportunity to understand how people think about a certain question or a certain product. And it's just getting, it, it, and, and so it's, what, it's a more deliberative than a poll? I mean, a poll just asks a specific question and gets a specific answer. Yeah, I'd say the difference is that a poll tries to count heads and I try to get inside people's heads. I'm trying to understand why, and pollsters are trying to find out how many. How many people believe X? How many people be believe or think Y or know Z or whatever the thing is that they're trying to, to, to quantify? I'm trying to get a, a qualified type of response. So where I, I understand how people approach something, uh, the way they attack something in, in terms of a, an issue or a challenge and uh, to see how they think through it. That's what I'm trying to do with, with a focus group. Um, and also, we do a lot of message testing in our firm, Engage Us, and we use a, a process called moment-to-moment -moment dial testing to pinpoint exact words and phrases that resonate or fail to resonate and to find out why they work or don't work. So if something really resonates with somebody, 
they up the dial on it so you can see graphically how that goes and we've seen some of that on uh during presidential debates with uh the things and it, it really is fascinating yeah that, that's um, what we specialize in and we do that we we have dial tested presidential debates um and speeches so we, we have a pretty good understanding moment to moment how how things are tracking for audiences as they're hearing them in real time and uh so right now you're engaged in a uh a project on focused on swing voters people who voted for trump in 2016 and then voted for biden in in 2020 uh where have you been so far with that uh so yeah it's, it's been quite a journey uh actually from march of 2019 through november of 2020 we did focus groups in seven different key swing states from the 2016 election and those were obama to trump voters uh, we did those across the upper Midwest, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Iowa, and then we had one or two detours down to Florida. After the election, we decided to pivot to the new definition of swing voter, as you mentioned, the Trump to Biden voters. And rather than going for, to one state at a time, which is what we had been doing before the election, we decided to make the recruiting a lot easier and to just collectively take from the 10 most po 10 most competitive 2020 states. So in that case, you're talking about, uh, actually, let me use my little cheat sheet here so I don't miss any, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Texas, Arizona, and Nevada. So 10 states. And so we take a mix of people from those states uh, every month. How do you choose your participants? So we're in partnership with a focus group recruiting company called Schlesinger. And what Schlesinger does is they have databases of people willing to do focus groups around the country. They also do proactive outreach through social media to get new people willing to participate. And these folks basically take a survey and they're asked a number of questions. The two most important being, who did you vote for in 2016? And who did you vote for in 2020? They have no clue who we're looking for. So there's no motivation to choose one candidate versus the other to lie about it because they don't know what we're searching for. So most people, as you can imagine, voted for the two Democratic candidates or voted for the two Republican candidates or the one candidate who ran twice, Trump. And so in, in, in our case, we're looking for people who flipped and who voted for Trump in 2016 then voted for Biden in 2020. So the vast majority of people who fill out the survey don't get invited to participate. But if you happen to go from Trump to Biden, you're invited to participate. Understood. Um, so what 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 are some of the subject areas that 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 you're covering? I mean, for example, you know, the Concord Coalition, we're very interested in fiscal policy, debt deficits, um, uh, entitlement reform, things of that nature. What are some of the questions that you're asking your focus group participants in this swing voter project? So we're generally asking about things that are hot at the moment. We're trying to understand both politics and policy. This year actually is a bit more focused on policy because this is what you might consider a quote governing year because we don't have a midterm election this year or a presidential election. So we spent a lot of time looking at things like infrastructure, for example, and what people are willing to accept or not accept in an infrastructure package. Uh, and what we've been finding is that generally speaking, they're supportive of uh, what President Biden wants to do on infrastructure. They're at least somewhat familiar with it. They recognize that it's expensive. They uh, do not want to borrow money to pay for it. 
that is basically hard and fast. They do not want to go into more debt in order to pay for infrastructure. And generally, they're comfortable soaking the rich to have wealthy corporations and wealthy individuals pay for the infrastructure. Uh, the other thing is that, well, in broad strokes, they know what's in it. Um, the specifics really kind of elude them. And what we did in one focus group back in, in May is that we took a, a giant pie chart that the New York Times had put together, actually a phenomenal chart that looks at all the subcategories in both uh, the jobs plan and the family plan. And it, it, it basically says how much money is being spent on each of these categories. And we showed people each of them one at a time. And they, I got the sense that most of these things are, are, are items that these swing voters value. They'd like to have them. The issue is how much more debt that uh, they want the country to go into to pay for them. And the answer really is not at all. I guess that's encouraging. I, th <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does that transcend into uh, uh, why they're worried about the debt? I mean, do they think about it in generational terms or do they think about it as a bad thing economically uh, or is gut instinct? Uh, what, what is the concern about debt? So it's so, a... Um, so, Bob, the, the thing to think about is that we're not talking about policy experts here, right? So there, it's a, it, I would say it's a fairly superficial understanding of what the debt means. But I asked about it actually the other night. I did focus groups um, on June 8th. And I asked about the concern about the debt. And I heard things like, well, how are we going to pay back all this money? That, 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 that's a concern. Um, I had one woman say she was concerned that there wouldn't be enough money for social security. And she was, she was older. I guess I had to look up her exact age, but she was, my guess is in her late fifties or early sixties. So she was concerned about the future of social security. Um, <clears throat> there's a concern about needing to raise taxes to pay the bills because we're incurring all this debt. What is that going to mean? And how is that going to affect me personally? Um, and there was a desire to cut back some of the infrastructure pl uh, plans that Biden has um, one person called it pie in the sky. It was just so much spending that uh, he, he, he thought it was unreasonable and half of it should be cut back. So the, the thing I would say, and sort of the theme that comes out most often is the degree to which people personalize this, the way they look at the way they look at a huge credit card expense that they have to carry. How am I going to pay for it? Where am I going to come up with the money? Is this going to cost me more somewhere else? How do I deal with it? Are benefits going to get cut? You know, so it's it. Not, not to over-dramatize it, but there's very much a me, me, me mindset to this. This mm -hmm. isn't sort of a long-term concern about uh, generational equity or the future of America. It's more about how does this affect me personally? No, that's, I think that's an interesting thought because I know that one of the things that we constantly try to, 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 to wordsmith is, is how to get uh, everyday voters to care about debt and deficits. And it's how do you, how do you personalize numbers you know, that you have a hard time uh, relating to them on a daily basis and how they affect your your daily activities. You know, and the numbers are so big as well. Uh, you know, it's how do you how do you make those real to John Q. Public when you're talking trillions of dollars? Um, so it sounds like that there is there's an avenue, if you will, for organizations like the Concord Coalition to talk about debt and deficits as long as there are ways that we can personalize it and how it affects voters in their lives in terms of 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 national as you were saying you know future tax increases and perhaps an impact on interest rates and how that affects credit card debt mortgage rates how much home you could buy etc that's exactly it tori is that personalizing it is the key 
because otherwise you're talking about numbers that are unfathomable, right? You know, trillions of dollars, you're talking about millions times millions. People, most people have a hard time envisioning anything really above the value of their own home, right? Mm -hmm. Just for most people, a six-figure sum. So to talk about trillions of dollars, it, I'm not sure how people handle it. And also people tend to misstate it. You know, I had one guy the other night in the focus group talked about $400 trillion. And I, I don't know what he was talking about. <laughs> I think maybe he meant 400 billion, mm -hmm. trillion, but the B and the T become almost interchangeable. And, and, mm -hmm. and obviously that's not right. One's a thousand times more than the other, but for lay people, they're just huge number and even huger number. And I think we just have to be mindful of that, 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 that it's hard for people to conceive of the true size of, of these amounts. I, I will say I'm guilty of same. I'm so used to writing uh, policy papers and stuff like that that talk about billions. And Bob's always having to come behind me and, and, and correct my billions to trillions. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a scary concept. Yeah, it is. Uh, do you find that that's that it, with other issues that that happens, that people personalize it? I mean, if they're talking about immigration or climate change or national security, do they try to make sense of it within their daily lives? Yeah, absolutely. Certainly with healthcare, absolutely. That's all. Healthcare is one of the hardest issues to message on, because everybody's experience with the healthcare system is is different. And so, if if you were in the hospital last week for a major procedure, uh, that's very different than if you haven't seen a doctor in four years. Uh, and so, whether you have insurance or not, what kind of insurance you have. So, trying to tackle that issue in particular is very tough. But every time I, I, I wish I had a quarter for every time I started a conversation about healthcare and someone went into a personal anecdote about what they just went through. It happens every single time, multiple times. Mm -hmm. that, that's how yeah. they look into it. It's all in personal terms. Mm -hmm. um, immigration, a little bit less so, but still for people, it's, uh, you know, it, it becomes a, what about my job being in peril? What about this sector having, um, uh, fewer workers in it in the U.S. and about jobs being shipped overseas. So it, 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 I think almost every issue in some way becomes personalized. It just it's a question of how each one has its own idiosyncrasies. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Uh, Tori Gorman and I are talking with Rich Tao, president of Engageus. Uh, about the focus group research uh, that he and his firm have been doing on Trump Biden voters. W not that they were running as a ticket, but people who voted for Trump and people who voted for Biden. Uh, we'll be right back uh, to get more uh, insights into his findings after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are discussing what's on the mind of swing voters with Rich Tao, president of Engageus. Uh, Rich has been conducting a series of focus groups with people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and for Joe Biden in 2020. And I guess the question is, what led them to do that? Um, Tori, you've got a question. Yeah, one of the things I'm fascinated by, when I watch some video clips of the focus groups that you do, Rich, it's always interesting to me what happens after you pose your question. You, you ask the audience a question and there's a pause. And then uh, you occasionally you'll see one person's hand go up and then boop, another person's hand goes up, which makes me start to wonder. And especially as you have a, a conversation, that's one of the nice things about focus group versus a poll is you get to have a conversation with the people you're interacting with them. 
So that, that, that makes me start to think, um, what, what, do, what are you finding as you conduct these focus groups are the greatest influences on voters and their opinions? Is it you know, the friends that they interact with on a daily basis? Is it the, the strangers that they meet in a, a focus group and they can hear what other people are thinking? Um, do they form their, their opinions through the media that they consume, whether it's print, television, radio, et cetera? What, what are sort of you finding, or what are you finding uh, as sort of the greatest influences of people and how they think and develop their opinions? That's a great question, Tori. I think it really varies from person to person. In some cases, it truly is media. And I'll hear people parroting certain things that are said in certain types of media. That happens from time to time. The, the thing about it is that uh, these swing voters are not as predictable as people who are clear partisans. So if I do a group with just Democrats or just Republicans, I can almost always guess what they're going to say to me because they're they're parroting what they hear in the media that they consume. And I'm talking about cable news, that kind of thing, uh, internet, stuff that they see on YouTube, for example, things that get passed around to them in social media, all those things influence them. With the swing voters, that happens also, but the outcome is, is less predictable in the sense that you have to keep in mind, what would cause somebody to vote for Donald Trump in 2016 and then vote for Joe Biden in 2020, right? It's basically, you wanted the change that Trump brought in 2016. You were not satisfied with Hillary Clinton. Uh, Trump and Clinton might've been the lesser of two evils. You chose Trump basically because you just wanted someone who wasn't part of the establishment, successful businessman. And then at some point you were so unhappy with him that you didn't want to give him a second term. And so it, what, what caused that? Well, some of it was the media consumption that you, that you saw. Some of it was the way Trump comported himself. A number of these voters told me earlier this, this year that they had decided well before the pandemic that they didn't want to vote for him. And it went, some of them went back to Charlottesville. Some of it went back to just the way he comported himself day after day in the White House with the endless tweeting. So, you know, it, it really was different person to person based upon what 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 they saw in, in Trump that they, they initially liked and then came to dislike. And just enough of those people flipped from uh, Trump to Biden in 2020 to give Biden the electoral college victory. But it was very, very narrow. In talking about issues, uh, policy proposals and things like that, is it is it common uh, to, to start a focus group where everybody's on one side of the policy and then after a series of questions and back and forth and dialogue, you find that the entire room has moved to the other side of the policy spectrum? Uh, really, no. Mm -hmm. no. And one thing I didn't, I, I didn't address in my previous answer was what really drives people's policy opinions is their core values. And so much is driven by what they believe, how they feel, much more so than just new information that changes people's minds. And we like to think that people, when exposed to new information, change their minds or open to changing their minds. The fact of the matter is a lot of people are pretty well locked into where they are. And it's, it's tough to get people to change their minds. You know, in the case of swing voters, clearly they changed party. They with, were with Trump and then they were no longer with him. So they had evidence of mind changing. So I would say they generally are a bit more open-minded to changing their minds than some other people are. But on a given policy issue, it's guided by what they think is right or what's wrong. And most of them have a, if they understand the issue, can basically give you some roadmap about how they feel about it and, and justify it. The other thing I see, and I have to be candid about it, 
is a lot of these people have no opinion on a bunch of things. They just don't know enough to have formed an opinion. And that's what I find actually pretty depressing about some of these groups is that there's a sizable number of people who even though they consume media and they listen to friends and family, just don't feel strong enough about any issue or any particular issue uh, when I ask them about it to, to render an opinion. You know, we have a, a budget exercise, uh, you may recall from long ago, uh, it's called Principles and Priorities. And, uh, but we, we call it that because we realize that people come to their decisions about, uh, you know, their opinions about budgetary issues by their, by their principles and, uh, and their priorities. And so then you get a bunch of people together sitting around a table and trying to figure out what kind of a budget they would come up with. A lot of times people are able to, to compromise their differences and, and come out um, with, a, with a budget. What, what I worry a little bit about is that, that uh, I, I'm not sure that we're doing that very well as a nation, as a society. Do you find in, in conducting the focus groups, and you said that people don't generally change their minds, um, a willingness to hear other points of view, or is that really not the focus group uh, uh, purpose? Well, the, the purpose is really is to, for me to hear what each one thinks. Um, and there are times when there'll be some cross conversation where one respondent might say to another, hey, you know, why do you believe this? Like it happened to me last week, we, we were having a conversation about whether people would be willing to vote for a Republican congressional candidate in 2022, who, who bought into the idea that the 2020 election was stolen. And a number of these respondents said, yes, they would be willing to vote for such a Republican. And one guy who was pretty vocal said, wait, really? You guys are willing to vote for a blah, 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 blah. And so you, you, sometimes that does happen in the conversation. But frankly, I don't think anybody's mind was changed. Those people came into it saying, yeah, you know, if, if the Democrats focused on the 2020 election looking backward and the Republicans focused on what's wrong in the country at the time of the midterm election, most of these people said they would go with the Republican because they wanted someone focused on the president and the future, not somebody looking back to the past. So how should, uh, I was gonna say, how should policymakers uh, use this sort of information? I mean, you, 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 you produce a lot of uh, interesting insights into this. So what would be your advice to policymakers? Is it, is it, this is what that you should appeal to or here's what your challenge is if you wanna move people in a certain direction? Well, that's a great question. I, I would say that you, 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 I would encourage policymakers to do is to look at what we provide in terms of qualitative research in tandem with quantitative research. In other words, the polling. But each one tells a different story. They're like separate tools. You know, sometimes you need a hammer, sometimes you need a screwdriver, and sometimes you need both. And I think for policymakers, you often need to, you need both. You need to understand not only how many people believe something, but why they believe it and where and to what degree they are potentially movable, going back to our prior part of the conversation. You know, are they persuadable? Is there an opening if you say something one way as opposed to a different way? What values are you buying into when you make an argument for or against a given policy? That's where the focus groups are particularly helpful. The groups are so small that they're not statistically projectable, right? It's not as though I'm speaking to 13 swing voters in, across the country and that represents all of them. It doesn't, but doing it month over month and now having done it in various forms since March of 2019, 
I've now spoken to hundreds of people. I've got a pretty good sense about how swing voters look at a whole set of issues. And I would encourage policymakers to understand that these folks are at the, 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 the tip of the spear. They are the ones who are going to basically determine, or likely at least many of them, determine the outcome of the next several elections, because they're the ones who can be moved in either direction. And knowing what moves them and why, I think, is really important. And just to add some color analysis to what you're saying, Rich, I think one of the things that that bugs me to no end about polling is it's all about how they word the question, right? And in a focus group, you've got the opportunity for dialogue. You can challenge the question. You can challenge the people that are sitting next to you. You can challenge the exchange of ideas. In a poll, you know, especially if it's negative polling or push polling, you know, would you vote with candidate for candidate XYZ if you knew that he beat his wife kind of thing? It's like, well, he probably doesn't. There's no evidence that he does. But oh my gosh, this is in the poll. Does he? Of course not. You know, and, and you know, I just that, that's the thing that drives me bonkers about polling. Now, obviously, reputable polling agencies aren't going to do things like that, but it does happen, and those are used to drive campaign ads. And I just I think it really sullies um, all all the inference that you can gather from from polls of that nature, and why I think uh, work like what you're doing here with with the the uh, swing voter project is so important because you get that back and forth, that exchange, and that opportunity to challenge ideas and questions. Exactly, that that, that to me is one of the great values of it. And we've got uh, about uh, a minute or two left, so um, I wanted to uh, give you a chance to give some advice. Um, based on what you've learned so far. And also, if people are interested in your work, um, where can they learn more about it? So it's, thank you, Bob. So the, the, um, the project, is, again, is called the Swing Voter Project. You can go to swingvoterproject.com and look at a highlights video that we produce every month, along with clips of each of the segments that we discuss in each month's focus groups. So everything is archived there, going back to the beginning of the project of March of two years ago. So every month the, the research is up there as well as all the media coverage of it. The thing I would encourage you to think about is if you wanna understand where things are going in the country, both from a policy perspective and a political perspective, there's no better place to look than to the people I'm interviewing. And that's the reason why I'm interviewing them. I wanna know where the country is going. Other people are interested in it as well. We do this in, in partnership with Axios every month. So every month there's an Axios piece that appears and I just encourage you, if you want to follow this, that you can actually, if you go to swingvoterproject.com, there's a place for you to sign up where we can email you uh, and let you know that uh, the new information is available. And you can go and watch the videos and, and see the Axios coverage of it and get a much clearer sense as to um, you know, what, what's happening. I, I would say that um, this is going to be a very interesting next, uh, next period of time leading up to the, the next election in, in 22. And I can tell you that, you know, looking at the po political side of it, that the Republican Party, although the brand is severely damaged after Trump, a lot of these swing voters are not happy with what he did. They are still open-minded to voting for Republican congressional candidates. They'll tell me that they, they judge the candidates based upon their personalities, uh, not based upon which party they belong to. And so that's, again, where they become so interesting because they're not driven necessarily by bipartisan affiliation, but by what they hear from particular candidates on particular issues. And it's, it's all over the place. This is Facing the Future. We've been discussing what's on the minds of swing voters with Rich Tao, president of Engageus. Tori Gorman and I will be right back after these short messages to discuss a new Concord Coalition issue brief 
on the uncertainty of cost projections for major new programs in President Biden's budget. Joining us for that conversation will be the Issue Briefs author, Steve Robinson, Chief Economist of the Concord Coalition. Rich, thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome back to Facing the Future. In this segment, we'll discuss a new issue brief by the Concord Coalition on the uncertainties of making cost projections for major new programs in the president's budget. Joining the conversation is the author of the issue brief, Steve Robinson, chief economist for the Concord Coalition, and Tori Gorman is still here. Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Good to be here. Well, I think this is a really uh, interesting issue brief in that there's been a lot of talk about the president's budget and the numbers in it. And the debate is really focused around, uh, you know, is the particular policy a good idea, yes or no? And uh, how do you pay for everything that's uh, all in the president's budget? One of the things that hasn't gotten that much attention is the underlying assumptions about the cost estimates given in the president's budget for particular new programs. And that's kind of important um, to look at because as you found looking at it, the the assumptions can be really, really important. And when you're trying to score major new entitlement programs, which is what these are, and it applies to tax cuts as well, or tax increases, um, it can be difficult (laughs) to, uh, to, to, to get a sense on that. So you were looking at just taking some uh, base case scenarios and trying to compare that with um, with where the president's numbers came out. Uh, you looked at a number of, uh, of the, the policies and and uh, started with the, the child care policies. So if you could kind of uh, walk us through the process that you went through and uh, and some of the key findings. Yeah, sure. So the, the president's budget has I guess sort of four main proposals. There's a universal pre-K program for all three and four-year-olds. Um, there sort of that is, is a proposal to uh, have a $15 minimum wage for uh, the staff who work in current Head Start programs. Then there's subsidized childcare for children under the age of five. Um, and of course there's an expanded child independent care tax credit. There's paid parental medical leave um, which would include the birth or adoption of a child. And then there's refundable tax credits. So there's actually you know, a lot of proposals there that are directed toward children. And while the budget requests about $1.2 trillion for all of those programs over 10 years, when you look at each proposal, you'll realize that in some cases, the proposal appears to be phased in. So the cost is very, very low in the first few years and it ramps up over the 10 year period. In other cases, the cost is relatively high in the first few years and then it goes down after that. And so it's not from from the information that's available, it's not entirely clear what the administration is assuming in terms of phase ins, phase outs, eligibility, and so what I, what I did is I sort of stepped back and I said, well, if you took each of these proposals literally and you said, well, what is universal pre-K for, for all three and four-year-olds? Well, you say, okay, well, how, first of all, how many three and four-year-olds are there? 
And according to census data, there's, there's close to 8 million, uh, roughly 4 million of each, three-year-olds and four-year-olds. And then you say, well, okay, what if you set up a, a universal pre-K program? What does that mean? Well, then you have to define several metrics. What is the staff ratio? How many teachers or staff members do you have per child? Um, how many hours a day does the program exist? You know, is it a year long program? Is it 180 days, which corresponds to the school year? Um, and so I, I sort of reviewed some of the literature and the, some of the studies that are available. And I, I found a particularly good study, I, I thought, from uh, Rutgers University. Uh, and they looked at the cost of what they called a high quality um, pre-K program. And it would be more or less along the lines of, of school year, six hours a day, five days a week, 180 days a year. They assumed that we would pay the teachers roughly comparable to what, what kindergarten teachers would make. And they came up with a cost of about uh, 12, $1,500 per child per year, which is you know, a fair amount of money. You multiply it by the 8 million kids and you come up with $100 billion a year. Mm -hmm. Over 10 years, that's a trillion dollars just for the pre-K program. Mm -hmm. So obviously the administration is not assuming that either it's a high quality program and we pay people, you know, what kindergarten teachers make, or they assume it's not that many hours a day, or there's fewer kids participating, or they phase it in, or they require the states to provide a match, which I've seen some references to. So the feds pay part of it, and the states are going to pay part of it. But anyway. And we don't know, we don't know those details right now. Well, though, yeah, those details are not, we've not seen legislative language. So those are some of the details that are not entirely clear. But anyway, as I went through each of these proposals, and I sort of started with, you know, what's the universe of eligible participants? What if you truly provided care or coverage for everyone? And then what are the variables in terms of hours or wages or you know, the costs that are involved in providing the services? And in, in almost every instance, I came up with a number that was in some cases multiples of what the numbers are in the president's budget. Now, again, I'm not saying that you know, their proposals are, or their scores on the proposals are completely wrong because we don't have all the details. We don't know what their assumptions are, but, it, but, but the point of the exercise is it shows assumptions really matter. When you're doing cost estimates, I mean, sometimes it's sort of viewed as a black box where you have some computer program and you know, it's gonna make these estimates and whatever the number spits out, that's the number and everybody takes it as a given. But in many cases, these, you know, there are dials that apply to the program in terms of participation, in terms of you know, the staff, in terms of wages, in terms of, you know, hours, all of those variables can, can be changed either through the legislation or, 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 or regulations or whatever. And that's going to dramatically affect the cost of each of these proposals. So in the, well, I just wanted to, in the president's budget, the universal pre-K, as you mentioned, ramps up, it gets to 34 billion uh, and another 3 billion for Head Start in 10 years right and uh even that that seemed even it ramped up over that 10 years considerably short of what just sort of a generic universal pre-k at full participation would cost yeah no no i did in my in the paper i pointed out that the 100 billion is sort of the gross starting point if everybody participated um 
we and that won't be that's not a realistic assumption so no, it would no, no, obviously no. be lower yeah yes for two reasons one not everyone will, will participate and two the states already provide some pre-k services there are several states that have a, a fairly expansive coverage of four-year-olds very few have three-year-old coverage so if you net out the money that the states are already spending uh, as well as there's some federal money for, for, for both Head Start and for uh, through, through TANF. There's some childcare assistance provided through, uh, uh, through, through that program. And if you net that out, that's about 30 billion. So it gets you to about a net cost of about 70 billion. If you drop the participation rate down to something comparable with five-year-olds currently in kindergarten, you get to about 85% participation. And that gets you to a close to $50 billion a year. But still, that's more than the 30 or so that's in the president's budget. And, and let's you know sort of step back for a moment and understand the implications of this as it permeates all of the president's budget. You know, there if it, we've already got a debt problem in the United States, if we're considering Biden's policies and those policies are being presented as being cheaper than they really are, and we're considering, for example, potentially revenue proposals that he projects generate more revenue, for example, than what really might happen. The, quite, the, the, the possibility here is that we're gonna end up potentially adopting policies that blow a bigger hole in our deficits and debt than we are anticipating, correct? Yeah, I think that is a real danger. I mean, anytime you're doing you know, estimates of, a, of an unknown, untried program, you run the risk of underestimating the cost. And it's the same thing on the revenue side. So as you say, if you, underestimate the cost and you overestimate the revenue, when both of those mistakes are added up, you the, the debt and the deficit are going to be much higher than expected. And, and full disclosure, the Biden administration, or, I mean, we're not accusing them of anything, uh, point, but, but my, my point being is that, you know, budget chicanery is not new and is not unique to any one administration. Okay. So, the, you know, overstating and understating and, and being creative with uh, budget documents is, is not new, but it's incumbent upon organizations like the Concord Coalition, coalition excuse me, to reveal that and talk about it. Yeah, and, and in the case of programs that are so-called mandatory spending so that they don't go through the annual appropriations process, a lot of these programs would be mandatory spending. Uh, you're, you're pretty much on the hook for them and if your cost estimates are way off, then your budget number is going to be way off. And that's uh, that's the inherent danger in in adding so much in, in mandatory programming. Uh, and then there is budget chicanery. Um, <laughs> uh, there is uh, you mentioned the, the child uh, tax credit. Uh, uh, Tori, you're you're more the uh, the baseline expert. Uh, could you and Steve walk us through? the baseline issues with the child tax credit in a way that uh, anybody could understand. <laughs> sure. Well, so we know that the Biden administration made a down payment on an expanded child tax credit in the most recent coronavirus relief legislation that they passed earlier this year in, in March. And they extended that tax credit just for the current tax year. Their, their budget proposals, uh, you know, which reflect the priorities of, of an administration, um, in the budget proposals, they extend that tax credit out to 2025. What's interesting, though, is that their talking points don't exactly match their, their, their budget documents. They've been talking about both the president, but also Democrats in the House and Senate, about making the child tax credit permanent. So the question is, is 
well, why in their budget documents didn't they reflect a child tax credit that was indeed made permanent? Why did they just merely extend it out to 2025? And I think, Steve, you've got the answer to that, or at least you think you have the answer to that. What What is your opinion there? Well, it's interesting. So back in uh, 2017, um, we doubled the child tax credit. So prior to 2017, it was $1,000 per child tax credit. And so starting in 2018, it became $2,000 per child. But the 2000 only extends through the year 2025. So after 2025, the 2000 credit goes back to 1000 Well, what the Biden administration did in, in, the, uh, in the, the bill this year is they added on top of the $2,000, they added a credit that's $3,600 for children under six, and it's $3,000 for children from uh, six to, to 17. And so what they show in their budget is the cost of that $3,600, $3,000 credit net or on top of the $2,000. And it's about $100 billion a year. Well, of course, what happens is in 2026, the 2000 goes back to $1,000. And so what the Biden budget didn't show is that if they added the 3,300 on top of the 1,000 from 2026 onward, the cost would be almost double what, what they're showing in, in the year 2025. So, 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 so let, let, let me summarize that real quick. So I want everybody to understand this. Basically what they've done is they've incorporated into their budget, the cost of extending their expanded child tax credit on top of the prior extension in 2017, okay, but they haven't included in their budget the cost of extending their child tax credit beyond that artificial plussed up baseline. Why? Because it would obviously be dramatically more expensive to make the credit permanent after 2025. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, that's right, exactly. That's all the time we have in this segment. Uh, I urge people to uh, look at the uh, issue brief. It uh, really examines this question about uh, the difficulty of making cost projections uh, and then looking at um, what these programs, how they're scored in the president's budget and looking at uh, what some reasonable cost estimates are. Uh, I want to thank all of our guests this week on Facing the Future, Rich Tao, Tori Gorman, and Steve Robinson. This is Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 